today we will be talking about what used to be the rich man's disease, at least if you go back to ancient Greece. Indeed, it was associated with overindulging in copious fatty meals and excessive amounts of alcohol. Rumor has it Alexander the Great potentially died from acute pancreatitis because he consumed large amounts of alcohol. Up until the mid-20th century, physicians largely relied on their clinical experience to manage this condition. In the 70s, Dr. John Ranson developed the Ranson criteria to assess pancreatitis severity and help stratify the patients. Since then, many scoring systems and guidelines have been developed to help physicians and surgeons alike in the management of acute, chronic, and autoimmune pancreatitis. Today, our patient has acute pancreatitis, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Pancreas Gone Wild, an approach to acute pancreatitis. Let's start with our minute physiology. The pancreas is an essential organ which lies transversely in the upper abdominal area between the duodenum and the spleen. It produces hormones such as insulin and glucagon, as well as essential digestive enzymes. Pancreatitis is one of the most common gastrointestinal conditions which needs prompt management, as it can result in significant morbidity and mortality. It is the result of an inflammatory process which eventually involves the activation of digestive enzymes within the pancreas leading to autodigestion and worsening inflammation. Numerous causes are associated with pancreatitis. In fact, there's a catchy mnemonic to recall the etiologies of pancreatitis, known as I get smashed. This stands for I idiopathic, G gallstone, E ethanol, T trauma, S steroid use, M mumps or malignancy, A autoimmune disease, S scorpion stings, H, hypercalcemia and hypertriglyceridemia, E, ERCP, and D, drugs such as thiazides, GLP-1 agonists, azathioprine, and many others. Pancreatitis can be classified into three broad categories. 1. Acute pancreatitis, which is a sudden inflammation of the pancreas in response to an injury of the pancreas. The two most common etiologies are gallstones, about 40% of cases, and alcohol use, about 30%. Other causes include trauma, medications, infections, and genetic disorders. Then there is chronic pancreatitis, which is defined as a long-standing inflammation of the pancreas, which leads to chronic changes such as fibrosis, scarring of the pancreas, and even pancreatic insufficiency. It's commonly caused by prolonged alcohol misuse, but other etiologies include autoimmune diseases, recurrent acute pancreatitis, and obstructive disease. Finally, there's autoimmune pancreatitis, AIP, that can be associated with both acute and chronic pancreatitis. AIP can be subdivided into two broad categories. Type 1 AIP is IgG4 related and has multisystemic involvement, with frequent involvement of the salivary glands, the thyroid, lymph nodes, lungs, biliary tree, and kidneys. On the other hand, type 2 is idiopathic and is non-IgG4. In this podcast, we'll focus on acute pancreatitis. Alright, so now that we've talked about the basic anatomy and the pathophysiology, as well as the etiologies of pancreatitis, let's talk about the diagnostic approach. We'll lead with a case. 
You are called to see a 48-year-old gentleman known for significant alcohol use who presented with a two-day history of sharp epigastric pain radiating to the back, nausea and vomiting, and difficulty tolerating regular oral intake. Acute pancreatitis often presents with sudden onset, sharp or stabbing, constant epigastric abdominal pain radiating to the back. It can be associated with nausea, vomiting, fever, or even jaundice if there is concurrent obstruction of the bile duct. Your history should aim to assess for the presence of any risk factors mentioned in the mnemonic earlier. You should particularly focus on the presence of risk factors for pancreatitis, particularly any history consistent with cholelithiasis-related illness or alcohol use. On physical exam, begin with an assessment of your patient's general appearance and vital signs. Does the patient look unwell? Are they jaundiced, which could suggest cholelithiasis? Are they tachycardic, hypotensive, febrile? Then, point your attention to the abdomen and look for epigastric tenderness, guarding, or even rigidity. In rare cases with pancreatic necrosis, you may find evidence of a retroperitoneal bleed with ecchymoses at the flanks, also known as the Gray-Turner sign, or periambulical ecchymosis suggestive of a peritoneal bleed, otherwise known as the Cullen sign. Laboratory investigations should be aimed at assessing the degree of perfusion, bleeding, inflammation, the severity of pancreatic damage, as well as any evidence of biliary obstruction. Imaging should also be performed with ultrasound of the abdomen to rule out the presence of gallstones, or with a CT scan of the abdomen to assess for any other potential intra-abdominal pathologies, but also to classify acute pancreatitis, particularly if the patient does not improve within the first 48 hours. If biliary pancreatitis is strongly suspected and ultrasound is unrevealing, EUS or MRCP should be considered. The Atlanta criteria of 2012 formulate that the diagnosis of acute pancreatitis can be made in the presence of two of the three following features. One, the presence of a classic clinical picture with consistent history and physical exam, namely an acute onset, epigastric or left upper quadrant pain radiating to the back. Two, serum pancreatic enzymes, lipase or pancreatic amylase, that are elevated at least three times greater than the upper limit of normal. And three, characteristic imaging findings on abdominal imaging, usually CT or MRI. The Atlanta criteria also help in assessing the severity of the disease. A mild acute pancreatitis has no organ failure, local or systemic complications, and usually resolves quickly. A moderately severe acute pancreatitis has transient organ failure lasting less than 48 hours and or local or systemic complications. Finally, severe acute pancreatitis has persisting organ failure. Local complications are either acute or chronic based on whether they have been present for more than four weeks or not. Local acute complications include acute peripancreatic fluid and acute necrotic collections. Local chronic complications include pseudocysts and Waldorf necrosis. Once your initial workup and appropriate imaging have been obtained, it is important to decide on the appropriate disposition. The decision to admit or not will be fairly obvious. Moderate and severe pancreatitis will evidently require admission. Mild acute pancreatitis patients may require a short hospitalization for observation and for supportive management with IV fluids if they are not able to tolerate oral intake, for instance. As to more serious presentations, the decision to admit to a monitored care setting such as the ICU can be supported by calculating the Ransons Criteria Scoring System, which is validated to estimate mortality risk in patients presenting with acute pancreatitis using the patient's age, white blood cell count, glucose level, AST, and LDH. A score higher than 3 suggests progression to severe pancreatitis, and therefore suggests a higher level of monitoring. Ransom's criteria also need to be updated at 48 hours into an admission, 
and so initial score may be an underestimate of how the clinical picture will evolve. It is therefore truly important to use your clinical judgment in this case. Now that we covered our bases, let's tackle the workup and the management. Initial blood work in a patient who is suspected of having acute pancreatitis will be broad and nonspecific, aimed at establishing the diagnosis and ruling out other pathologies. As such, you should order a CBC, lipase, which should be elevated in acute pancreatitis, liver enzymes and bilirubin to look for any evidence of biliary obstruction, electrolytes and creatinine to look for evidence of acute kidney injury. Notably, hypocalcemia and hypomagnesemia can be found due to the binding of these ions to fatty acids released from damaged pancreatic cells. Inversely, severe hypercalcemia can be one of the etiologies of acute pancreatitis. Order a blood gas with lactate to assess perfusion, coagulation profile to rule out coagulopathy, which can be found in DIC secondary to a systemic inflammatory process triggered by pancreatitis. Imaging workup has been described already and includes CT or MRI. Once the diagnosis is established, further workup can be performed to establish the etiology of pancreatitis. Careful history or ethanol levels can point towards alcohol as an etiology. Cholelithiasis or cholelithiasis will point towards a biliary etiology. Additional laboratory workup includes triglycerides to look for levels above 11,000, calcium to look for hypercalcemia, or IgG4 levels which can point to type 1 autoimmune pancreatitis. Finally, a careful medication review should be performed with a verification of timing of initiation of all medications. Now let's discuss the treatment options. The treatment options for acute pancreatitis vary depending on the severity of the disease, underlying etiology, and if there is presence of complications. General cornerstones of management include early fluid resuscitation as soon as diagnosis is made, with particular attention to evidence of volume overload, particularly with patients with advanced age or history of significant cardiac and or renal disease. Early oral nutrition is also of utmost importance. There's no role for routine nasogastric tube placement. You can start with clear fluids and advanced diet is tolerated. If a patient cannot tolerate oral intake, then enteral nutrition is preferable over parenteral nutrition. In such case, a nasogastric tube can be inserted until a patient can eat and drink on their own. The rest of the management steps for acute pancreatitis are etiology-directed and aimed at addressing complications of pancreatitis. In gallstone pancreatitis with ongoing obstruction, an ERCP can be arranged with timing to be decided based on severity of disease and the concurrent presence of cholangitis. A cholecystectomy should also be arranged, ideally within the same hospitalization, unless there is severe necrotic pancreatitis in which cholecystectomy should be deferred. In alcoholic pancreatitis, Supportive management is offered, along with interventions aimed at reducing risk of alcohol withdrawal intra-hospitalization, and interventions towards alcohol cessation can be initiated if the patient is interested. Management of hypercalcemia with IV fluids, bisphosphonates, or calcitonin is clinically indicated. Management of hypertriglyceridemia with IV insulin or plasmapheresis. Steroids, rituximab, and azathioprine can all be considered an autoimmune pancreatitis. If a medication is suspected to be the etiology, and other causes have been excluded, consider discontinuing the medication or exchanging it for another medication of the same class. With regards to management of complications of pancreatitis, pancreatic pseudocysts and necrosis do not warrant intervention and can be observed. There is therefore no indication for routine endoscopic or surgical drainage unless there is any evidence of gastric, 
intestinal, or biliary obstruction secondary to the formation of a collection. Sterile necrosis does not warrant antibiotics and can be observed. In infected necrosis, treat with broad-spectrum antibiotics aimed at enteric organisms or arrange for an EUS-guided fine-needle aspiration biopsy with gram-staining for tailored antibiotics. When possible, choose carbapenems, quinolones, or metronidazole to allow for penetration of the pancreatic necrotic tissue. If the patient is stable, drainage, endoscopic, radiologic, or surgical can be deferred to allow for the development of a fibrous wall. Time for our medicine minute. As we mentioned previously, fluid resuscitation is of utmost importance in acute pancreatitis. Trainees are often told to aggressively resuscitate these patients, but we all know that fluids are not harmless. This begs the question, how aggressive do you truly need to be? In a 2022 JAMA study, Demadaria et al. sought to investigate this exact question by designing a multi-center randomized controlled trial in which patients were either randomized to aggressive resuscitation, as defined by a bolus of 20 mls per kilogram of body weight, followed by maintenance of 3 mls per kilogram per hour, or moderate resuscitation, 10 mls per kilogram bolus, and 1.5 mls per kilogram per hour of maintenance. The study's findings were so convincing, it was halted at the mid-interim analysis. Indeed, there was no significant difference in the resolution of acute pancreatitis, the development of severe pancreatitis, mortality, complication rates, or the need for intervention. In contrast, fluid overload occurred in 20.5% of patients with aggressive resuscitation, as opposed to only 6.3% of patients who had moderate resuscitation. In a nutshell, less is more. Make sure your patient is adequately fluid resuscitated, but be mindful of volume overload. Naturally, if you have a young patient with good cardiac and renal function, you can be more lenient with fluids if clinically warranted. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Pancreas Gone Wild. This episode was written by Dr. Ikram Abal Mohammed, internal medicine resident, and Dr. Amin Zuglami, internal medicine resident, and is reviewed by Dr. Konstantin Sulelis, gastroenterologist, and Dr. Sanabel Zabat, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Leia Karianopoulos. The music production by Lakshmi Santhamo. The Internet Work Series was created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leia Karianopoulos. As always, don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for associated resources and infographics. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.